0: You're listening to Beyond the Clinic, living well with melanoma, a podcast produced by Aim at Melanoma, the foundation working to end melanoma. Hosted by the Director of Cancer Survivorship for Kaiser Permanente San Francisco, Dr. Raymond Liu. Beyond the Clinic features topics seldom discussed in the exam room, but essential to patients and their families during and beyond treatment. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. It is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an aim at melanoma endorsement. Cancer research discussed in this podcast is ongoing, so the data described here may change as research progresses.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our next episode of AIM Melanoma's Beyond the Clinic podcast series. A diagnosis of cancer and going through treatment can feel traumatic. Is there growth that can come out of all these challenges? We'll explore this concept of post-traumatic growth with our guest today, Dr. Richard Tedeschi. Dr. Tedeschi is the Distinguished Chair of the Boulder Crest Institute for post-traumatic growth at Bluemont, Virginia. He's a licensed psychologist and professor emeritus at UNC Charlotte, having been on the core faculty for 42 years before retiring in June of 2018. His book, Transformed by Trauma, Stories of Post-Traumatic Growth, uses storytelling to help readers understand the process of creating a new sense of self after a traumatic event. Welcome Dr. Tedeschi to our podcast today. Thank you very much, pleased to be here. Right, so maybe we could start by really understanding what post-traumatic stress disorder is. Can you help us understand that?
2: Well, post-traumatic stress disorder is a series of symptoms that people suffer from in the aftermath of certain kinds of experiences, usually thought of as witnessing or being exposed to the possibility of death or threats of death. And these kinds of experiences create a great deal of anxiety in people so that they result in symptoms like being wary and hypervigilant about their environment, avoiding things that they feel are dangerous, having negative ideas about what their future might be and what's going to happen to them. These kinds of things are chronic very often and, and so post-traumatic stress disorder has been defined according to this range of symptoms. So, in your book, you talk a lot about
1: s- stories about around the military and military experience. But I think you would—it's safe to say that can- cancer is a traumatic event, isn't? it?
2: Well, he- here's something I'd I'd like to clarify, and that is usually in the in the trauma literature, professional trauma literature, people talk about specific events that can be traumatic, as they find in the diagnostic manual I was just referring to. But in, in the work that I've done, I've focused on trauma in a little different way. And what's traumatic for people is that the events are calling into question their usual ways of understanding their lives and their futures and who they are and the world they live in, what we call their core beliefs or assumptions about what life holds for them. This very anxiety arousing and all kinds of events can create that sort of sense in people where they say, you know, things are really strange and mm-hmm. changed and difficult to understand, and I don't know what to make of it anymore. Mm-hmm. So in that way, I could see how that relates to a diagnosis of cancer, or maybe
1: even going through through treatment. Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely. You, that's, you talk- that's, that's the truth about, about cancer, because a lot of people, of course, are thinking, oh, well, I know cancer happens, but I never thought it would happen to me. And I think you could also talk a little bit about the
1: scientific explanation for how that happens, the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. And I, I love how there's an analogy of how the, the, the dial's turned off for some folks and they're in this hypervigilant state sometimes. What, what, what allows somebody to be in that state versus not like what, what makes the difference between someone who re- reacts that way and uh, someone who doesn't?
2: Yeah. So when you're talking about sympathetic nervous system response in the colloquial terms, it's usually thought of as a fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, a freeze response, perhaps, and this is the uh, built-in system that we have in responding to threat. It's a survival mechanism. So, for example, at Boulder Crest and the work that we do here, we uh, emphasize that these responses are normal, they're built-in, they're normal responses to threat, And, uh, and the problem is when they occur in the absence of some real tangible threat that we can fight against or flee we're kind of stuck with these responses without much to do about them because they're built in for more physical combat essentially and for example a diagnosis of cancer you know you 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 can't fight against it in the in the tangible sense you know people talk about the the fight against cancer but you know it's it's a different kind of fight than you have with an attacker so what we need to do then is help people energize their parasympathetic nervous system The other part of their nurses, which allows them to dampen down that response, which is not very helpful and useful over the long term. So an analogy that I sometimes use with people is as if they have a, they're like a a car alarm going off in an empty parking Mm -hmm. lot. So sometimes you see these cars are sitting around, nothing's happening and the Mm -hmm. alarm's going off. The alarm system's working great. However, it's going off at the wrong time. And it's oversensitized to something, and it and so the the system of, of of energizing the alarm has has created this response. So we have to we have to help people turn that alarm system off because it's not useful under the circumstance. And therefore, we have to use certain te- techniques to regulate those emotions and turn that alarm system down. So where does growth come from then?
1: Is, is growth a, a sort of a natural progression after being able to calm this, this sensation down? Or are they, they some very different concepts?
2: Well, it is a natural progression because in the work that I did on post-traumatic growth over the years and all the research we've done, almost all the people that we, we did research with went through this growth process not because of any particular professional intervention. So it's not like you have to have therapy in order to have this happen. So it's a naturally occurring process, and it's a process which happens because of this challenge to the core belief system that I mentioned to you earlier. Mm -hmm. Because when that system of beliefs is challenged, we have to reconstruct it. we got to figure out what to believe in the aftermath of that, and that provides us with an opportunity to see the world in a different way, to see our world differently or see ourselves differently, our futures differently there is an opportunity there for a change in our perspective, in our change in how we go about living our lives. So that core belief disruption is is unpleasant and anxiety-arousing, but it does provide that opportunity.
1: So maybe you could tell me a, a story that really sticks in your mind. You know, your book is, is, has many, many examples of this, but maybe something that sticks in your mind as an example of how that that growth can happen.
2: Well, here's Here's one example, and uh, here's an example of a woman I've worked with who has been battling with cancer. And uh, and in this process, she found that her husband was not very responsive to her and supportive of her. Mm-hmm. And she was a woman in oh, her late 50s, and it started to dawn on her that she sort of put up with this kind of thing for many years in her marriage. And she started to think, Now, this is the the indication of maybe how little my husband really cares for me or or how little he is capable of that. And she started to think, am I going to live the rest of my life like this? Or maybe I'd be better off going my own way instead of continuing this. So the cancer became kind of a turning point for her, where she started Mm. to think about how she was living her life, what kind of marriage she had, and how she wanted life to be. And And she started to think, you know, I I don't know how much longer I have to live and how much, you know, do I want to invest in a marriage that's never been very satisfying for me. So she said, you know, if it hadn't been for the cancer, I might never have really come to terms with this, but it kind of forced my hand, allowed myself to see Mm -hmm. things from a different point of view and maybe take the risk to count on myself and rely on myself and see my own strength and have a different sense of my future. I see. So
1: I think it it could be sort of what you're saying is it helps you reevaluate your own relationships, and in some cases, those relationships you you you've you've been thinking about how to f- how that relationship's been and and how to make it better, but also maybe it's it's an appreciation for relationships that are going well.
2: Absolutely. You know, th- this post-traumatic growth that we talk about has all kinds of individual variations and in how people experience it. So, for example we're talking right now about changes in people's relationships. And that's one area of post-traumatic growth that you sometimes see. People will see who is really supportive of them, who really cares about them. They're able perhaps to invest in relationships in a different way with more empathy or compassion or depth. So relationships can be changed that way. And, and sometimes people talk about the change of their address book, like realize, mm. you know, who you want to hold on to and who you want to maybe have less to do with in your life because they create (laughs) problems for you. So changes in relationships are one one area, but there are others too. And another is recognizing your own personal strengths, ability to manage things and get through things. Another area is new possibilities or opportunities that open up in your life because maybe some things you have to say goodbye to and or or you develop new interests or priorities another area of change is just to be more appreciative of life having that sense of gratitude for things that maybe you took for granted and then a final area that we find is people who start to address the question of what the the meaning of their life might be or the purpose the purpose they're serving with their lives and uh, and making sure that their lives have a have a value and and maybe a value that other people benefit from
1: do you see some commonalities between you know, when people go through this process and, and sort of what what careers they take up or what they end up doing with these new possibilities? Are there other trends? Are there things that the commonalities, or is it just very individual? It's a, sort of like a soul searching type
2: of thing. Well, of course, it's very individual in terms of the specifics. But one of the things that at, at Bouldercrest in our work. With, with, and we're doing mostly work with veterans and first responders like police officers, firefighters, EMTs, frontline healthcare workers. One of the things that we emphasize is the growth component is really going to be sustainable over time when you come to terms with this question of your purpose and to try to develop a way to be of service, a way to benefit other people in some way. So finding, finding that may be a career decision, but it doesn't have to necessarily be in terms of career. It could be the way you spend your time in your relationships, for example. But the concept of mm-hmm. being of service and benefiting others seems to become very important to people when they confront traumatic circumstances or histories they have and they want to live life well and live life in a healthy way. That, that service becomes very important. I see. So I think
1: what I'm hearing you say is that when, when you, when you're going through this growth process and something common you see in the folks you work with is that that when they think about purpose, it becomes about others, actually what they're doing for other people that gives them a sense of purpose.
2: That, that's a very important part of it. It's, it's a self expression for sure. A, A, an ability to locate in oneself what, what your talents and abilities are, what you're really able to do well and then turning that in a direction that provides benefit to other people, not only yourself. So, for example, in the stories that you read about in the book you mentioned, Transformed by Trauma, you see examples of that with some people who decided to to recognize what they really wanted to do with their lives and what was really important to them. Like There's a combat veteran, for example, who was close to death on the battlefield and recognizing that he had never really Pursued what he wanted to in life, and was really regretful that he might die and never do what he wanted to do, which was actually to become an artist. and um, And so, trying to figure out what was really meaningful to you, or or another woman whose 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 son died, and she thought about suicide, and and luckily she was not successful with that, and she started turning her attention toward helping other people who had suffered through similar tragedies and started developing an organization and a a way of being of service to people, gone through things similar to what she'd gone through. So this locating what's really crucially important to you, what you're really passionate about, I guess we could say, and uh, and how other people might benefit from that, because there's such a great, you know, there's such a great response you get just internally, when you see other people benefiting from what you're doing.
1: It's amazing that you, you tell the whole range of stories, because in, in that first case, that really struck me when I read the book. It was about, you know, this desire, this passion, always to pursue art, which can be personal, but it can also be giving to other folks about, you know, your personal expression. And then to something, I, I think you even mentioned the, how the Red Cross was formed in, in like a big yes. organization. So whether it's something very personal or whether it's something that is actually developing even a big organization. That Those are the new possibilities, a whole range of possibilities that people could explore.
2: That's right. And the artist, for example, that is very personal, but that man, that young man, actually also started to share his art with kids and do some work with kids mm. um, around his that talent and start to share that in a way. So I think yeah. some of the best outcomes for people is when you get this combination of doing things that are personally important to you and satisfying and being able to share those things in a way that other people are part of the process. I see.
1: How do we, you know, one of the other things that struck me was like, this is in process. Is there, are there ways to accelerate it? Are there ways, like are, can caregivers when they see their loved ones going through this process, is there a way that they can encourage or is it therapy that can accelerate it or is it just that we just have to give it time? And if so, how long can we expect how this process to take?
2: Well, it's a, it's a great question because, you know, if, if this was only possible by getting into psychotherapy, we'd be in tough shape because there just aren't enough psychotherapists to go along for, for all that. Right. And actually, at, at the Bouldercrest Institute, with our programs for veterans and first responders, all our programs are peer delivered. They're not delivered by mental health professionals. We train people. And these peers, of veterans and first responders themselves, deliver these programs. But it's based on the concept, which is very portable and democratic, that can be applied anywhere. And that is that the important thing is for people to have an expert companion, we call it expert companionship. And we focus on the idea of being a companion to people, that the real expertise is to have that kind of relationship where... You are invested in the the journey this other person is going through and are present with them. And in your presence, you are aware of the possibilities for growth, the opportunities for that, and see the strengths and capabilities in people and help highlight those things for people. So, you know, you're able to be a good listener to them, humble enough to know that you're not going to be able to solve their problems or fix things for them, but to be there with them. And as they discover pathways for themselves towards something useful and meaningful, you can point those things out and you say, hey, listen, you know, I saw you I saw you talking to that other patient. And I think you really helped them. You have a gift for that. And to point out that kind of capability. And and for example, you know, as I was saying that I was just reminded of a of a young man that I interviewed this was decades ago when we were first doing this work. And uh, I did an interview with this young man who was uh, paralyzed. And uh, he had suffered this paralysis in a motor vehicle accident in mean, his early 20s. And uh, he said that when he was in a rehabilitation center, one of the physicians said to him, you know, I like your attitude about how you're approaching this rehabilitation, but a lot of these other young men here are really struggling. Do you think Maybe you could just give some encouragement and talk to them a little bit. And he discovered through that process that he had this gift. And he ended up going back to school, getting a degree in rehabilitation counseling. And when I talked to him, he was, he was a director of a, a center, that a nonprofit organization that helped people with disabilities. And he discovered that because this physician saw in him the special gift that he had and touched him with it. That was enabling him to connect with these other patients and see, you know, what he could do and how satisfying that was. And it led him to a different path in his life. So that's, that's- expert companionship. The expert companion mm-hmm. sees these possibilities in people yeah. and and sees opportunities for a future when people are struggling to see it themselves. That
1: That's such a powerful example, too, because I'm, I'm thinking that one of the domains you mentioned of growth was forming deeper relationships. So in a way, when you develop these types of peer networks, you're also forming deep relationships, right? So it's part of the growth itself.
2: Absolutely. And absolutely. So that's, it's
1: that's exactly cycling right. cycling back on itself in a virtuous cycle almost. Right. And I, I could see that that's how you bring caregivers in too, because they become part of the cycle. They're essentially those peers that can help
2: others as well. That's right. Caregivers uh, have yeah. this opportunity, you know, and mm-hmm. with the way we can help caregivers, is help them see the importance of their role, and their role is is beyond simply taking care of the the needs of this other person but also having them be aware of the possibilities for a future and uh, and change and growth and you know i remember a a cancer patient that i saw many years ago he had lung cancer and he died but a couple of weeks before he died he said to me you know the past five years of dealing with this cancer has, have been terrible but wonderful at the same time because I've gotten closer to my wife, closer to my kids, mm-hmm. I've recognized what's really important, I've lived life a different way. We've had the best relationships ever during these past mm-hmm. five difficult years. And so he could recognize that. And that didn't, that didn't solve the problem or make everything all wonderful by a long shot because he knew he was just about to die. But he could at least recognize that this whole process wasn't meaningless, that it it ended up having a purpose for him and for the other people in his life it, it's so so amazing
1: to me, too, because I think about purpose and caregiving. And I also think like how how amazing organizations like a melanoma come up because of these types of passions that people have and and maybe their own experiences and I know a lot of oncologists who came into the field because they have their own personal experiences, and that was their way to express that that growth. You know, I, I I became an oncologist before this happened, but as I saw my my mother struggle through cancer, I think it made me also grow. And this was not my own personal experience with cancer, but just watching someone go through with it that was so close to me. Yes, it can can help with that growth and help giving mm-hmm. you meaning to to a person's life. What? What do you think about support groups? Because I think one of the, you know, support groups can be that kind of support, peer-to-peer support. At the same time, sometimes support groups also feel so too intense for the person experiencing it, whether it's, let's say, like a military support group or like, or a cancer support group. What's the right balance? Like, is there some people that said, no, I can't do that, I can't do that. And some people said, really do engage with that kind of peer-to-peer.
2: Well, I think groups are are a great vehicle for helping people through things of this kind. And I've I've been involved for, with support groups for many years for a nonprofit. W- w- we serve bereaved parents, so we had support groups for bereaved parents. And I thought they were terrific. But, you know, it's not everyone's cup of tea. And I think people have to make their own decisions about that. And their own decisions about when they're ready for it so they may not feel ready at one point in time and feel ready at another point in time so i think honoring those decisions is important but the other thing i think is important is to engage people with what concerns they might have about a support group and say you oh, know maybe this will be a downer and i'll just hear a lot of sad stories or you know i'll feel responsible for other people's troubles or i'll be too embarrassed to talk about mine or you know it's all kinds of things that people worry about about joining a support group which are perfectly understandable so i think uh, addressing those kinds of concerns is important and and also how the support group is run or facilitated is important too so you know the 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 person who's the facilitator of the group can help to create an atmosphere that is encouraging and where people get to have their say and People are listened to respectfully and all of that. And in those cases, the support group will work very well. So having a a, a humble expert companion as a facilitator is very useful. So that's important in making sure it's run well.
1: Mm-hmm. It depends on how it's run, but you see a lot of value to it. Yes. Tell me a little bit, because I, I was I was also struck in your, your book that we're coming to common themes in a lot of our our podcasts about like, Self-care and basic things like sleep and nutrition exercise are important in this process. And I was I was surprised to hear it in this context again, but it seems like you need a space physically a healthy physical space in order to do this this type of emotional growth too.
2: That's that's right. Again in our in our boulder crust programs, we do emphasize wellness in a in a general way. So we address things like nutrition. We address things like physical exercise. We even address things like financial wellness. Because if you're worried about money and finances, it's hard for you to devote your energy to things that would otherwise be important too. So living life in a healthy way, in a general way, is something that we recognize is important for people. And uh, sort of It's kind of a cliche perhaps, but treating the whole person. There's truth to that. And 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 I think when people start paying attention to these different aspects of how they live and doing it doing them all in a healthy way, they generally start to feel better about themselves, about the kind of futures they have. And you know, life just gets a little bit easier when you live it in these healthy fashion and and that includes all these these areas. Also the spiritual part of things too mental health and of course we're we're not we don't promulgate some particular religious perspective, but encourage people to to think in terms of the world beyond themselves, I guess we could say, and not just focus on your concerns at the moment but but see life in a in a broader sense that includes other people and and perhaps a transcendent part of experience that if you start paying attention to that you might Make some good, healthy decisions about the way you form your own life.
1: That is a great way to sort of end, to end our conversation. We we're already up to the thirty minutes, and I, I always lament how fast the time goes by and and how much we learn each time. I think what I'm learning about is this process of growth that can happen out of out of these challenges and how someone can you know go through that process either with in terms of a personal journey and how that can transform into something even beyond themselves and that's 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 an amazing that's amazing part of this journey do you have anything in closing that you think our listeners would really appreciate in terms of sum, summing up that that experience of growth and and how we can we can go through that journey
2: well i'll i'll tell you this that i've been working in this area for i don't know well over 30 years and i guess one of the reasons why i've to work in it is because it's so satisfying it's it's mm-hmm. wonderful to be in a position to help people through these these kinds of difficulties in life, but not just get, get them through it and survive it, but see the possibilities that still exist in life, even when things look dire. It's a very gratifying kind of thing to do. So any way you can get involved in working with people who need help of this sort and taking this post-traumatic growth perspective on it, I, I think you'll find it very personally rewarding.
1: Dr. Tedeschi, thank you for your time today. And thank you so much for helping me grow today and understanding how we can contribute to, to each other and to, to, our, to our peers and, and our patients and those folks around us and to form those deeper relationships and meaningful, meaningful relationships. Thank you so much.
0: For more information on this topic, please visit aimandmelanoma.org. If this podcast was useful, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple, Google Play, or Spotify. This podcast offers insight into the world of melanoma care, covering a range of educational, inspirational, and scientific content. You can find all shows, including this one, at aimatmelanoma.org. Aim at Melanoma is a global foundation dedicated to finding more effective treatments and ultimately the cure for melanoma,